Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. This program featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming is sponsored by The Mosaic Company. Things that matter are measured in generations, like traditions, families, and farms. For a growing operation, the health of the soil should last. Introducing Sestera by The Mosaic Company. It's a first-of-its-kind phosphate fertilizer made with recycled organic matter to improve soil health and ensure its sustainability for generations to come. Visit SesteraFertilizer.com to learn how your land can provide for tomorrow's generations and leave a legacy that matters. I encourage you to subscribe to the series, which is available on iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. Dwayne Beck has been the research manager of the Dakota Lakes Research Farm in Pierre, South Dakota since 1990. Among his many contributions to the understanding of the impacts of no-till on dryland acres, one of the most significant has been identifying the important role of crop rotation in minimizing weed, disease, and insect problems while increasing the potential for profitability within the system. For this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast, we're bringing you part two of an interview that Cover Crop Strategies Associate Editor Sarah Hill did with Beck during the summer of 2020. Join us as he talks about what farmers should do if they're looking to transition to no-till, how adding perennial crops can help build soil, what Dakota Lakes is doing to become energy neutral, why he likes to think in 600-year goals, the importance of local markets, and more. What would be your advice to some of those growers who are maybe just starting no-tilling or who are interested in changing to no-till or transitioning? Well, you got to do your homework. And I mean, we've got a few publications I think help. They need to talk to some guys that are maybe successful. You know, my, my main advice would be to not play the same game that they've been playing with conventional till. Don't just switch tillage. You got to change the whole thing. And Ralph Holsworth, who's one of my dear friends, if somebody comes to Ralph and says, well, I, I want to be a no-tiller, what do I do? And he says, well, the first thing you have to do is go to Dakota Lakes and, and see the diversity and drive, you know, drive around and look at the different soils. I can show them how different the soils are with different rotations. Corn, soybean is garbage because there's not enough carbon there. The native prairie, look at a soybean compared to what you see in a native prairie, it's not even close. And, you know, I think we're going to have to use perennial sequences and we're going to have to do a bunch of other things. So if you think about it from statehood, 1889, when we had basically nobody here to speak of, we went from that to the Dust Bowl and flooding at the same time in the 30s, 50 years or less. I mean, just totally stupid what we did. And, and we can't keep doing that. And, we, and everybody goes, well, we just got to do a better job of this. No, you know, we can't do a better job of this because what we're doing isn't working. And, they, and to grow corn and soybeans for less money than it costs us to grow them to ship it off to China because the nutrients aren't coming back. If we ship them our phosphorus, we're not going to get it back. So we're going to be zero net energy here at the farm by 2026, which isn't all that hard. There's a little press out there in that other building that presses all of our oilseed crops. 
So we get the oil out of them. We can sell that oil, we can burn it, and we can feed the meal so all our nutrients stay here. You know, that's the way it's supposed to work. And uh, we get all the water to go in the ground and we cycle all, all the nutrients to the top, the saline seeps that everybody has problem with. That, the thing that's in a saline seep is just fertilizer, lime and gypsum that, you know, if we don't use them, they'll leach. If you don't put a crop more than corn and soybean in there, they're gonna leach below the root zone and just go away. And it's a common problem everywhere in the world that I travel. You know, you, Argentina, they have rivers forming in areas that are not supposed to have rivers just simply because they, well, we have all these sloughs and, and whatever. We put in drain tiles. They haven't put in drain tiles so the new river forms. We just, we just help it out by putting the nutrients right in the river directly through our drain tile. And everybody thinks that's a good thing. Send your fertilizer down to the Gulf of Mexico so we get the hypoxic zone. Australia has, well, you know, you saw the bushfires and that kind of stuff, right? And they, at the same time, they having all the bushfires, they have this salinity thing going on because they replaced these trees with a wheat plant, not even close. Illinois, Indiana replaced trees with corn soybean. We, eastern South Dakota, take a tall grass prairie and place a corn soybean. So we have rotations now where we're putting perennials back in which is what we did until 50 years ago or so, or 70 years ago, and we got nitrogen fertilizer, and we went, no problem, but what do you do when you run out of fossil fuel nitrogen, so. So that different perspective, would you say that that is the, probably the biggest obstacle? It's the biggest obstacle. And, and some people will just watch their neighbors and do what their neighbor does, but then you're no better than the neighbor. So I think you need to figure out, you know, how you're going to approach things. That's a big thing. How do you make that, per, those perennials and diversity, how do you make Cows help. those all profitable? Yeah. Well, the system itself, it has to, together, it has to be profitable. Again, the wheat doesn't maybe make me money, somebody says, you know, I said, but it does because it makes the corn and soybeans better. So you can't, you can't sort those things out. I think that the livestock integration is probably going to be the biggest challenge. You know, the, the thing is, if we, if we could just get the government out of there, you know, and just say, go away, <laughs> leave us alone, um, we'd be way better off because we're making just really stupid decisions because we're being paid to make stupid decisions and, and maybe put some more money into decent research. Um, how many years ago was it? I think it was 2013 or something. I did a meeting in Kansas and I had to do the closing. So I pulled out some numbers. It was about that period of time that the total budget for USDA, ARS and, and the Ag Experiment Station was like $2.3 billion. I think now it's, it's 2.4 or 2.5 or some number like that. And it funds all the USDA. There's, you know, 2.5 billion fund all the federal guys and the money that goes to SDSU and whoever to supposedly run the experiment station, which is almost nothing now, that year. In the same year, they were subsidizing crop insurance by $14 billion. So all ag research was 2.3, and subsidy for crop insurance was 14 billion. Makes no sense, and it's gotten worse. I mean, this year, I mean, Trump just keeps throwing money at the farmers. He's got a new one now. We got the COVID money I got to go sign up for, which I really don't want to. And then what 
what farmers do with those subsidies is they capitalize them into land costs. So the people that make the money is the landlord, not necessarily the farmer. It doesn't really reward you to do the right thing. It rewards you to do the risky thing because you get paid off when you fail and or when you succeed, but you're doing the risky thing. So if you fail, you get paid off. If you didn't get paid off and you, when you failed, you probably wouldn't do that risky thing so much, right? So they get them doing the wrong thing. And then I showed them how much money, because USDA also funds SNAP, right? The food stamps. So I showed them how much per person, on average, a farmer got, and how much per person, on average, is the the welfare mother's got. And I said, look at who the real welfare people are. But somebody needs to have that discussion, but nobody wants to, because it's too hard. Let's kind of switch gears. With weather patterns changing. Are they? Well, <laughs> they're certainly different than they have been to yeah. some extent. Carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere is higher than it used to be. Right. We don't know what impact that's having, right? That's, that's. How does that affect going about no-tilling or does it? Well, it gives us even more of an advantage, but because it's all about moisture and evaporation and cycling. In reality, we have changed the local climate, both in the Jim River Valley and here, and even in Eastern South Dakota, but not as much because you know, when I said in Redfield, we had these dry years like 88 and whatever. By the time you got to late July, everything was black, including here. It had all been worked. And one of the things I said in my orals, I should have just shut up, not said too many things in the orals. But one of the things I said is if we were growing crops in the summer in the Jim River Valley, instead of just having wheat and barley and whatever, we would have higher humidity and we get more summer rains and it would be it would be more like the tall grass prairie when the tall grass prairie was there that was transpiring those warm season grasses which are just starting to take off now and they'll be over my head in three weeks they're just amazing but they're transpiring a lot of water and they're and they deep deep rooters they go down 10 12 feet and they bring all them nutrients back up to the top but they're absorbing the sunlight they're transpiring water so you're cooler and wetter than you would be if you had black ground there. All you have to do is walk across the parking lot to know that. And the same thing happened here. The year I did, one of the years I did my thesis, we had 12 days in pier that were greater than 105, I think. Some silly number like that. Wow. I got it in my thesis, but it was just miserable, right? And in the early days that we were here, even 2002, nobody was really no-tilling yet in 2002, uh, you know, kind of, a few. But we just had just hot, dry, miserable weather because everything turned black here in the summer, and late summer. And, and I don't think we've had, the last two years, I don't think we've had a day over 100 in Pier because there's residue out there. And the residue reflects the sunlight. And then there's plants that capture the sunlight. So you're not shining it on a black surface. I think the second or third year I was here, I was planting, had an open station tractor with a little planter behind it. I said, no, during the cold. But as I went across the field of wheat stubble, 
you know, nice, long stripper head of wheat stubble, I would get warm driving that tractor across that stubble. And I'd get to the end, and they had this black road at the end, and it was cool. And then I'd go back in, and it was warm, and then it was cool, and it was warm. And I'm going, well, that damn wheat is reflecting all the heat. That's why my soils are cold, you know, that wheat stubble. So I got a hold of the wheat breeder, and I said, I want you to breed me a black strawed wheat variety. See, how's that for stupid thing? You know, different thinking. I need a black, dark strawed wheat variety so it doesn't reflect so much light. And he said, well, that's a single gene. I can do that easy. So I can make you a black Arapaho and a white Arapaho, you know, or a light colored. And I said, that's great because I'll go out and I'll plant one row of black and two rows or three rows of white, one row of black. And then where my corn rows go, it'll be black. In between where the weeds are, it'll be white. But he couldn't make it express in the field. We could get it expressed in the greenhouse, but we couldn't get it to express that color in the field. But he has a, there's a variety now called Redfield. It's very dark. And I think that comes out of that program. You know, so what's climate change going to do to us? It's, you know, it's going to be different, maybe. But we have done, and I say that in my talks now, because I do some of this, we have done more to screw up local climate and soils and whatever with our practices than what will happen because of climate change. Having the black ground, having the organic matter at half what it should be or less because we've done all these years of tillage. Even if you no-till corn soybeans, you don't build organic matter back to where it was. I mean, in your country, it probably was 10, 12% organic matter in those prairies. Building it takes years. Well, it takes, and it takes more than just annual crops, and it, right. it probably takes putting the perennial sequences. So you said, well, how do the perennial sequences make money? Well, you get to continue to farm. If your time frame is next Thursday, or two years or whatever, which is where we're stuck because that's what everybody has us doing. But you can't afford not to do the perennials. So why are we throwing money at these programs that basically subsidizes guys to do the wrong thing as far as dropping practices? And if we do anything, you know, we do something like CRP, and then when it comes out, it just gets all blown to hell anyway. I mean, it's not a concerted long-term mm -hmm. program. But there's a book I've just read not too long ago called uh, Civilization Critical by Darren Qualman, who talks about the, you know, talks about all this stuff, the linear versus nature is a cyclic thing. Mm -hmm. cycles things more locally, you know, and we, we got into this saying, well, I'm going to put it in a boat and it's going to go, but then you get it back, you know, and why not cycle it locally? And, you know, I think the whole, you know, I had people calling me up and asking me if I had flour. And I'm going, well, I've got a lot of flour and, you know, I got wheat and I got a grinder. So I got a lot of flour, you know, and we should be making flour in South Dakota again. You know, a hundred years ago, everybody bought their food from somebody they knew, either their butcher or whatever. And even the grocer, but it was a local grocer. And a lot of times it was a local vegetable grower or it was a neighbor or something. He was sourcing it locally. Yeah. Well, my mom, she what she did is she didn't cultivate a garden, but she cultivated a gardener. And neighbor lady that gardened like crazy. And um, mom baked. And it was a great symbiotic relationship. Because this lady couldn't bake her way out of anything, right? So, 
you know, bring her cakes and cookies and she gives you cucumbers and tomatoes. And it works out. Yeah. yeah. But I, I think we need to have more of that long term. We, we go through an exercise with the board where we, we talk about 600 year goals. 600. Yeah. Why not? I mean, if you're a farmer and you, you say, okay, now I want my descendants to be able to farm and to actually have the quality of ecosystems that we have now, clean water, living soils, you know, ample wildlife, those kind of things. I, we want that. We all want that. So what do we got to do to get there? You know, we have to, we have to manage things differently. And what we've done with agriculture has been more of a mining operation. How fast can you mine it out and get rid of it? You know, I start my, the pump station at the river, Lewis would have walked right across that same area where we're putting the intakes in in 1804. So I could go back to his journals and find out what he found here. And then how we changed that. See, so 1804, well, that's, well, that's, that's like 200 years ago. Mm-hmm. Blink and I. Lincoln like and and it just totally changed and they come in and took out the beavers and when they took out the beavers that was a keystone thing and so now we and they started to overgraze and they started to do tillage and now we have flooding so do we go back and put the beavers in no we built big dams that are going to silt in a beaver dam silts in and then he just builds another dam he does it for free but we somehow think that Beavers are bad guys because they, you know, they build up, these dams build up and flood our houses. Well, we shouldn't be building our houses where the beaver wants to build his house. We need to put a house higher. The Native Americans build way up on top of the hills, right? I mean, there's that site between here and Pier where they had this 2,500 person village up there with moats and the whole, you know, the earthen houses. They're way up on the hill. You know, why did you build in the valley? Somebody could sneak up on you and you could get flooded. And so the white man down south built built in the valleys and then and then we took out the beavers and he got flooded and the answer is to build dams. You know, could we control nature? Well, no. no I, nature still finds a way to win. Well, I you know, I got I don't know if you know Buzz Clute, but Buzz is kind of videographer. He's kind of crazy guy. <laughs> and um I was doing an interview with him one day and I, you know, I was talking about the gene jockeys, you know, the biotechy guys. And they always come up and go, oh, look at here. We can do this with genes and whatever. And then Mother Nature's sitting there going, I've been doing this longer than you have, you damn amateur. <laughs> right? And the next thing you know, we have resistance or we have something else happen. There's some unintended consequence. I predicted Roundup resistance in 94 at a Monsanto meeting, big meeting, and I think Monsanto knew. And I think the guy that had me do the clothes knew I would bring it up because he was having an argument with other people in the company about whether they should tell anybody or not. Nobody believed me anyway, so they just blundered on ahead. But Now look where we are. Yeah, well, but that's no big deal. When they first come out with what they called at that time Emicorn, which is now Clearfield corn, but it's resistant, tolerant of the ALS herbicides pursuit and those kind of guys. And I had a young grower that was at a meeting in Sioux Falls. Says, I, you know, I was talking about crop rotation. He says, I got corn now. Pursuit kills everything. He said, I, I'll grow beans and corn, use pursuit on them both, and I don't have to worry about crop rotation. 
well, cis nematodes and whatever an issue too, right? But white mold and all these other things that reach up and beat you and extended diapause, corn rootworm beetles. And, but I just said at that time, I said, well, you know, they do now, but you're going to have resistant weeds and they'll be resistant to other ALS products other than Pursuit. And I got a nasty letter from Cyanamid, who had Pursuit at the time, and, and said that I couldn't prove that. And they wanted a retraction, and they sent one to my boss. And he called me, and he said, did you get this letter? And I said, yeah. He said, what's your response? He said, I think I know. <laughs> he said, are you going to retract? And I go, no. But I said, I will retract in three years if we don't have it at Dakota Lakes. I just started here when I said that, when, I was, when that happened. And I said, I'll take care of it. And I wrote the guy in the letter and said, three years. If I don't have resistance, I'll, at the farm, at Dakota Lakes, I'll retract. And then Leon Reggie put in a trial here on peas and stuff, chickpeas, I guess. And, and I, I really felt bad about this. I did this to him. But I went up the hill here. There's a guy that had been growing glean, wheat fallow glean for years. And he had all these resistant kochia. They all blew into the fence line. I went up and got a bunch of his kochia, and I came down, and I went on Reggie's trial. And we had all these ALS-tolerant kochia just come blowing right through the pursuit. And I took some pictures and, and that I still have, and I called the guy up, and I said, you want to talk about this now? And he says, we're too busy. We've got all these complaints. We've got resistant kochia everywhere. They just kind of burned that letter. But it's, it's, it, you can predict it every time. We just don't want to hear it. You need to run more. You need to, you know, you need to bicycle. You need to do these things. And we go, yeah, you got a pill. We want the easy way. Yeah. I mean, so you don't change your habits, you know. But, you know, I think, it's, I think agriculture needs to be thought of differently. It needs to be cyclic, not... I mean, Darren Qualman really hit it on the head with that book. I mean, he did a whole bunch of good stuff in there that, not just agriculture stuff, but just all these things that happen that make you forget about what's, what your limitations should be. We don't think there should be limitations to what we're doing. You know, he used the Industrial Revolution in England as an example. I mean, you're not going to use coal as a fuel if you don't have some way of moving it to where the, you know, it's not nice stuff to handle and move, it's heavy mm -hmm. and whatever. But then, you know, the once they had steel, they could make railroads, right? So then they could haul coal and he like 1850 or some number. But uh, the amount of steel production in 1850 in England, if they're gonna make it from wood, from coke, like they did when they first started, would have taken cutting cutting down for that year, cutting down all the trees in the UK. But we don't have that limitation anymore because we got coal. But you know, we're we're stealing from our grandchildren and we're polluting the ecosystem. We're doing all none of this makes any sense. Why are we doing that? You know, to, to, in, in the US to sell corn for less than what it costs us to produce it. And that's an egg policy. See, but the the people that really uh, interested in all that are people involved in the inputs and whatever. I mean, they're, and they're, yeah, it's going to be a real painful thing to extract ourselves out of there.
We'll get back to Sarah and Dwayne Beck in a moment, but I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, The Mosaic Company, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Things that matter are measured in generations, like traditions, families, and farms. For a growing operation, the health of the soil should last. Introducing Sestera by The Mosaic Company. It's a first-of-its-kind phosphate fertilizer made with recycled organic matter to improve soil health and ensure its sustainability for generations to come. Visit SesteraFertilizer.com to learn how your land can provide for tomorrow's generations and leave a legacy that matters. Before we get back to Sarah's conversation with Dwayne Beck, here's Frank Lesseter with a little-known no-till farmer fact. This time's little-known fact is a question about where, when no-till really got started. And in my history book, From Maverick to Mainstream, A History of No-Till Farming, there's a picture showing farmers no-tilling in the 1930s. However, they didn't know what it was called at that time. There's a farm all tractor pulling a grain binder to harvest soybeans as a forage crop as four horses pull a grain drill sowing a cover crop right behind it. It was lightly shot in the 1930s on a sunny fall harvest day on a central Indiana farm by renowned photographer J.C. Allen. The photo shows seeding a cover crop directly behind soybeans being harvested for hay. The seeding trip with the drill would be classified as no-till today. What's amazing is how close the cover crop seeding is done directly behind the grain binder. The four horse drawn drill had to follow directly behind the binder to avoid hundreds of twin tied soybean bundles that were kicked out on the ground during the previous trip around the field by the grain binder. So here's proof that cover crops and no-till have been around for many generations. Based on this photo, some farmers may have been no-tilling before they even know what the system was called. Let's get back to the program now as Dwayne Beck talks about the benefits and limitations of precision ag technology. So over the years, you've probably seen a lot of changes in technology. Yeah, we have. In the 80s, we were looking at trying to do the auto guidance type thing. Mm -hmm. GPS wasn't quite there because we didn't have the speed. And, mm -hmm. and, and Don Froelich and I, he's with, well, he's with mechanical engineering now at SDSU, but he was ag engineering. He had a drive to Ball State University to get some robots from Ball State because they gave them to SDSU. And David Letterman had bought them all brand new ones, right? Because he graduated from Ball State. And one of the guys in ag engineering at Ball State or engineering Ball State knew Don. So we went over and got these welding robots. And we also went to uh, Dayton where they have the uh, soapbox derby. But we, we visited with laser plane because I had an idea of using lasers to guide the tractors. Mm -hmm. And using GPS laser combinations because you could move the laser mm -hmm. and have time to get it fixed before you... <clears throat> And, you know, they thought the GPS thing was going to happen sooner than what it did. It's okay now. Um, my auto steer is great. And I got RTK and it's plus or minus an inch. And I love that. You know, the rest of it, I don't know. I don't know if we use it well. We've got a drone in there. We can fly and look at things. And in the 70s, I was hanging out of Dan Cronin's airplane uh, with a 35 millimeter 
infrared film camera taking pictures. So I don't know that we've come all that far, right? I mean, that was one of the best things we did was show people how shitty their corn looked when they did tillage. And <laughs> they cultivated, you know, the old days you used to cultivate and then they'd wipe out some corn and you know, there's this big spot. And, and um, yeah, I, I mean, I just remember hanging out of the airplane and Dan cussing. When we get over his field and he'd cuss about this cultivator blight and whatever, see, but yeah, it was really good. I mean, it, so, but it, it, it was stuff that I could see with the naked eye. I couldn't take a color photo and, and catch it. But with your naked eye, I could see that and so could he, mm -hmm. right? So it, it, it's just another observation. So the first time I talked about precision egg, which isn't a science, by the way, it's a technology, it was not a science. But the first time I talked about it probably was in the 90s. And, and I used the analogy with my grandfather when he plowed with a one horse walking plow. To do an acre took him all day. And by the time he walked the horses back to water and back out the field and back to rest and back to the field and whatever, he, you know, he probably put on 15 miles or some silly thing like that, some god-awful number. And the year I was born, believe it or not, I'm an old fart, the year I was born, I think, was the first year my dad had a corn picker. Prior to that, they picked corn by hand. Everybody did. Uh, he was a very good picker. He could do 100 bushels a day. And that's how he made his living in the 30s was picking corn in Iowa. Because we didn't have corn in South Dakota. He went to Iowa, they had corn, he picked corn. And he showed me how to pick corn. And I, I handpicked all my thesis corn out of these fields, which, you know, and he gave me this thing to put on your hand and, the whole, and taught me how to do it. And it, it, he was really good at it. He was just great. Um, but the thing that he had that I don't have with a combine and the thing my grandfather had, he had a very intimate knowledge of every square inch of his land. And so the thing I said to the folks is that precision ag needs to be designed so it allows the operator to develop an intimate knowledge of every square inch of his land uh, like we had in the old days. And so it allows the analog computer between the ears, not the digital computer on the desk. The analog computer is very good at making decisions. It's not good at keeping track of shit. And digital computers are really good at keeping track of shit, but they, know, they have no idea how to make a decision. And everybody keeps trying to make the digital computers make decisions. We're going to change fertilizer rate. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. It doesn't know. It has no idea. So it's just... Yeah, it's a tool. So how do you, but you got to make that interface. And, and Cheryl Reese from SDSU was a graduate student of mine. And I tried to get her to say, okay, I want to be able to take a map, you know, elevation map, a soils map, or whatever map, and be able to lay them in, take them off, and then take a pen and go, here's my zones. Because I know this spot here that's doing so well is where grandpa had a hog lot. The okay. computer doesn't know that. Computer has no idea, Yeah. right? And they wouldn't know how to do that unless you had written a thing in about grandpa's hog lots and what, what the probability was that you'd find one of those in the middle of somewhere. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing I've said to him is it got to make it easier, not harder to do things. And we have all these maps 
it's really hard to go through all, you know, I mean, there's all our farmers have all these files and maps they never look at. And some, you know, and they get some guy at the co-op that draws them a zone map that doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. And he doesn't know enough about fertility or whatever to make those decisions. The, f the first yield monitor that was a yield mapper is in this building. Cool. And, and you know, don't get me wrong, the, the auto steer on there is just my favorite thing because I've got awful drive. And if you're doing research, it keeps track of stuff. And, I, and I'm doing it by hand a lot of times. I write down what's, but I know I'm in the right spot. And every one of every pass, because one of the things we do here is we have people from SDSU to put stuff here. We have thousands of small plots out here. Mm -hmm. And most research farms, they pay no attention. Next year, you put another set of plots out there right over top of this year's set of plots. And there's just so much noise in the data that it, we manage every 20 foot wide pass out there as an individual field in terms of record keeping. And so when somebody wants to put in a sorghum variety trial, I can go through where we're going to plant sorghum and I can look at different passes and what hasn't had anything on it for the last six years. Mm -hmm. And that's where we put them. So that way, the data is the data, and the and the and the and the and the scientists just love it. Uh, my administrators don't understand it, and well, they don't know why that's important. And I should be publishing papers and getting grants, and I'm not. And I'm paying a lot of attention to what the farmers need, and I'm paying a lot of attention to to what the scientists need. And we do our own. I mean, I got three graduate students, so they're out there doing that too, and trying to keep it uniform. And it's a challenge. And GPS is great for that. We used to have to go out and measure and put flags up. And then I had to try to drive from this flag to that flag. And I'm basically blind in one eye. So I got, I got these big curvy things going on out there. I mean, it's, yeah, so that part's great. So talk a little bit about some of the current research that you're working on. What are some of the examples of the different projects that you're currently working on? Well, we have one, the phosphorus. NREC. Uh, NREC is Nutrient Research and Education Council, and it's a checkoff from fertilizer sales in the state of South Dakota looking at things. We can't keep turning our lakes green. That's a stupid thing for us to do. And, you know, and, and you know, why are you putting your fertilizer in my lake type thing? So with long-term no-till and crop rotations and whatever, we have this mycorrhizal fungi thing that happened that allows us to pick up nutrients, especially phosphorus, that are highly insoluble without those. Okay, so a phosphorus soil test is, how available is the phosphorus out there? So we can run our soil test P at incredibly low levels. So we have very little soluble phosphorus out there, which would make a fertilizer dealer drool because he's using Olson or Bray or Malik or something that estimates the solubility and goes, well, your phosphorus is really low, Bill. You just got to put on 2,000 pounds of phosphorus. And all of our soil tests on the irrigated part of the farm, which kind of sits closer to where the river is, are five parts per million and less. We got some that are down at two parts per million, which, you know, <laughs> people look at that and go, hmm. and, <laughs> and we don't get response to phosphorus fertilizer additions in terms of raising that soil test up. So if we can go out there and put a little bit of starter phosphorus on, plants fine. 
And as soon as it gets its relationship with all these mycorrhizae, he just he's happy as hell. And and so there isn't very much soluble stuff. So Brennan, who sits where you're at, we're doing this stuff where we've in 2014 we drew it all down. In 2014 we started on one field. The rest of them we just leave down to say, okay, what if we built back up? to these higher levels that are common. We took five strips out there and we added 100 pounds the acre of MAP in 2014, 2017, and then again last fall, 2019. So what, it had 300 pounds over the last five, six years. And then we had another five strips that we put 200 pounds on each year, so that's 600 pounds total. And then we have some we just leave alone. We just put on like 50 pounds when we plant type thing and, and placed in proximity to the row to get it going until it can make all its friends. And, and we're not getting any yield response and we, we're not getting really any nutrient response necessarily, maybe just a little bit less nutrient in the seed on something like soybean or wheat, but not difference in yield. And then a companion one of those is where we're just just doing that little light rate of P, but on half the strips, it's going on the surface, and the other half, it's going in the ground in proximity to the row. And we get a big response to that. But most guys will broadcast their phosphorus because that's what the elevator wants them to do. Just go out and spread it, and it's fine. Well, then it's most vulnerable to run off and end up in the lake, right? And so then Brennan is doing, see all those water bottles there and stuff? Uh, <laughs> he's doing this stuff with uh, infiltration things, trying to, you know, putting water on, trying to, number one, we're no-tilling, so it's really hard to make water run off. So he's, he's putting on like 20 or 30 inches of water to, to try to get it to run off. And then when it runs off, he's measuring, grabbing that, and that's going to go in for a test. We're also putting a solution sampler in underneath where we're doing the infiltration to if anything is going down, what's in there in terms of the stuff. And it's just, it's, but basically if all the water goes in the ground and you're have these relatively insoluble phosphates, it's not going to go anywhere. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm pretty, but you know, we're, we're trying to prove where that is. Where's a point where it's starting to pay to try to bring that soil test up a bit. Okay. So that's what Brennan's doing. Sam is doing a thing with cover crops, one of the problems with cover crops in this country, and you'll hear it other places, if you put it in and then you grow your cover crop and then it's dry, then you're screwed the next year because you haven't gotten all the moisture you wanted to have in the ground, right? Your cover crop dried it up too much. Farmers are never happy. It's either too dry or too wet, too hot or too cold. So <laughs> we're, we're going to try to help them. So we he has strips of stuff where we put different cover crops in and some that are just checks and then in its wheat going to corn is the sequence so we'd be planting the cover crop after wheat if you don't plant the cover crop right away and you wait to see if it rains or not you're just screwed because if it does rain you don't get any growth out of it because you planted too late and if it doesn't rain you never get anything in there you know and then next spring it might be too wet so what we're trying to do is is put the different cover crops in and then we take a drone and we take pictures of the crop as it grows and then use irrigation ET calculation stuff like we do with irrigators. If you do ET calculations with irrigators to estimate how much water 
that crop is used and then use long-term weather records and statistics and whatever to say, well, on that soil that only holds or does hold this much water, you use this much and then, you know, and then you're probably still okay if you get normal rainfall. I did a thing years ago with a spreadsheet that said, okay, in this soil, it holds X amount of water. You harvest wheat in July, you plant corn in May, but you don't really use water until late June. Mm-hmm. It's almost a year. And if you live at Oneida, South Dakota, you get 17 or 18 inches of rain in a year. If you catch all the moisture, keep the ground covered, you should be over full. But farmers are always afraid of being too dry more than they are afraid of being too wet, which is an interesting concept. And, uh, but then they go till their ground, so then they make it dry. So it's just going on, that doesn't make any sense. But we're trying to fine tune that a bit in terms of that decision-making process with what he's doing. And it changes the color. When you change the color of the residue, you change the temperature of the ground. So we're with these different cover crops, right? My black straw wheat thing. You can do the same thing with cover crops. You, and, sense. Yeah. So and then he, you know, he flew his drone day before yesterday and took pictures of all this stuff before, you know, as the corn is coming up. And then we have temperature sensors in and moisture sensors. And then on the dry land, we started, we did a lot of rotation studies, but we had three that we started with here. One was what I call the old ecofallow rotation, which is the, the grandfather that started with Wicks and Charlie Fenster in Nebraska in Kansas and they 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 were winter wheat summer fallow in this you know really long growing season Kansas Nebraska thing so their their time of beating the ground was intensely long and and they had no herbicides to speak of so what they did was they would use paraquat and atrazine after weed harvest because that's kind of all you had was paraquat and atrazine and then and then the next year they would grow sorghum and they'd use kind of a dual or look-alike thing that they had for for grass control in the sorghum, but they would just no-till into that wheat stubble and grow their sorghum, which was very successful for them. And then, and then the fallow year, so they did, you know, wheat sorghum fallow. So instead of wheat fallow, so now you're growing two crops over three years. And then their fallow year, they'd try to use a little 2,4-D or something for a while, and then they would work the ground maybe twice instead of six or seven times, and then still use their whole type openers for putting the winter wheat in. So it was kind of a hybrid system. But the idea was good. And one of the first thing I did was basically say, okay, when we came here, I'm gonna take out the fallow part. Uh, I'm gonna put a cool season broadleaf in there. So we put in peas or lentils or canola or flax or something like that that's still lets us get back to winter wheat in the fall kind of as long as we're no tilling so that one's still there and then we did one that was for the farm program and you're not old enough to remember the farm program but these guys were 50 percent wheat based so they got paid based on their wheat base still to this day if you have a certain number of acres or whatever that's what you're your money you'll get for the coronavirus is based on your what you grow, how many acres or whatever, they have those records going back in the 30s. Mm-hmm. But your big value in your land was how many acres of wheat did you have? 
wheat base. And if you had a big wheat base, you always got a lot of money. So they wouldn't give up wheat base for anything. And, and if, if you didn't grow wheat on that ground, then you lost some base, right? So you're not going to cock them into, into growing anything other than 50% wheat. And in some cases, they'd built their bases up to maybe 65% wheat base. And so I had to come up with a rotation that would allow them to do that without doing every other year. Every rotation study I've ever done, you can chisel it in stone. The alternate year rotations suck. Corn bean, wheat fallow, wheat pea, wheat whatever, because it breaks all Mother Nature's rules. And you, you need the long breaks for disease. You know, if you ever took a biology course, you have this lag phase and then growth and then you get the dye like this, right? Mm -hmm. So you take advantage of that. You put something in, put it in there twice, you know, and then you, get, you have the long break. So it goes down to really low pressure, you know, like disease. If you've been out of wheat more than two years or out of beans more than two years or whatever, you'd have almost no disease pressure. I don't care what the weather does, you're not going to have disease because mm -hmm. you don't have the inoculum there. Yeah. I mean, but every other year you always have weeds and diseases and insects there that have been built to resist, you know, to live through at least one year out, maybe two. So I came up with a spring wheat, winter wheat, or a wheat, wheat, uh, corn, sunflower type rotation. And that would allow them because of the rules and regulations associated with sunflowers and alternate oil seeds and stuff at that time to protect up to a 70% wheat base. And that's still the predominant rotation from here north um, because it it kind of did those things. And I said, you know, in 10 years or 15 years, you're going to develop cheatgrass that learns to germinate in the wintertime. And you'll have to extend that. And most of them haven't, so they're using herbicide in that winter wheat year. They wouldn't have to. Okay, but they're still doing their wheat, wheat, corn, sunflower thing. We do wheat, wheat, sorghum, um, corn, and then a broadleaf. And um, we do a cereal, cereal. Most of that first one's uh, half of it is oats. But that one pretty much the same. We had that for as a four-way until, until we got freedom to farm from Dashiell. And then we put that extra year in there. We were planned on that. And then we had one that was every other year broadleaf, but it was it was diverse. In other words, it it um, went corn, cool season broadleaf, wheat, warm season broadleaf. So it was every other year broadleaf. And and if you notice, if you're really astute, you notice that that corn, cool season broadleaf, wheat is the same one that's ecofallow rotation. Mm -hmm. So we added an extra broadleaf in that ecofallow rotation, and we did that one for 25 years. And the soils totally destroyed themselves. Got all platy and crappy and just like the corn soybean ones do. And and finally, we've been here 30 years, finally a few years ago, I said to the board, how many, because they kept wanting me to do it, you know, and because and, boy, it's great when you show that to farmers. And I finally said, so how many slow learners are we going to keep doing this for? You know, all the slow learners got to be dead by now. <laughs> or they're not going to change anyway. So what we've done now is we put that into a five-year perennial. So it'll be alfalfa grass mixture for five years. And then in time, I mean, our best rotation, our best soils is where we have 75% or more high, high residue crops. 
So that cereal, cereal, sorghum, corn, broadleaf is 80%, right? That's a real sweet spot. The ecofallow thing is 66. It's a little bit low, so it doesn't look as good. So now if we take and we do a 66% for 15 years plus five years of perennial, that gives us a total of 80% for any given field. But you won't see those results. Well, we've got five years under our belt. We won't see results for another 15 years. Hmm. Okay. So my major professor, when I told him what I was going to do for a living, he said, it's a good thing you're a young man. You'll be an old man before you'll know anything. <laughs> but that long-term research like that, the way we've got ag research set up now, that isn't being done unless the farmers are involved doing it. All that we've gotten done is we've stopped the bleeding. We haven't really healed the patient. I mean, just in areas we've stopped the bleeding. A lot of areas we haven't stopped the bleeding yet. Thanks for tuning in to the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast. You can find more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies at notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Before we wrap up this episode, here's Frank once more answering a listener inquiry. A reader recently asked me what were some of the interesting ideas I've seen at the National No-Tillage Conference over the years that never quite caught on. And there was one at the 1997 National No-Tillage uh, Conference in Des Moines, Iowa, and it was deep banding starch pays off with no-till. And a researcher by the name of John Walker told attendees that deep banding starch has the potential to increase yields with almost any no-till crop. He was an agronomist at Ricks College in Rexburg, Idaho, and he told attendees to use granulated starch rather than powdered starch mix it with starter fertilizer and then deep band the mixture with the planter at a rate of at least 20 pounds of granulated starch per acre. About six months later, we decided we were gonna do a story on this in No-Till Farmer and he called me up in a panic and somebody, I don't know whether it was the researchers or whatever or the starch people, were dead set against this idea so we never did the story and I never heard any more later on about putting starch in the ground. But at that time, it was worth a few extra bushels per acre. Thanks to Sarah Hill and Dwayne Beck for today's discussion. And thanks to our sponsor, The Mosaic Company, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lesseter and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.